This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you that it's your revealed truth to us. And we do pray and ask that you would speak to us. Uh, confront us, enable us to conform to your likeness and uh, comfort us that we might live for your glory and honour. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many years ago when one of our kids was born, uh, my work colleagues decided to give my wife and I a birthday present. It wasn't for us, it was for our newborn baby. Uh, one of my work colleagues, a younger guy, later said to me privately that he would be personally offended if he was handed a gift for his child, uh, the birth of his baby. Um, at the time, I didn't take much notice of it. I just brushed it off as another young uh, whippersnapper with you know, another opinion and uh, very little life experience. Uh, Later on, the more I thought about it, the more it sounded ridiculous to me that you could possibly be offended if someone gave you a gift, especially if it was for the arrival of your newborn baby. Uh, During the week as I was preparing for this morning, uh, having reflected on this particular incident years ago, I now realise what lies at the centre or at the root of this particular comment or sentiment is a human trait that we possibly all share. And that is generally, uh, we're not good receivers. When someone compliments us, sometimes we blush or uh, we play it down. When someone is generous towards us, we're uh, thankful, uh, but sometimes uncomfortable. When someone wants to bless us, we're sometimes overcome with these feelings of guilt uh, that we've caused them inconvenience. Or perhaps like this former work colleague, uh, pride gets in the way and uh, we take offence. Now it's possible that these are just assumptions that I'm making, but I want to take a risk. I think it's the same also when it gets applied to God. Uh, When God has something to give us, um, something to offer for our good, for our goodness, uh, it can be met with apathy, doubt, suspicion, uh, scepticism, and at worst, rejection. This morning we're going to be confronted with a biblical truth that will stretch, challenge, possibly smash every part of us that wants to to be independent, self-sufficient, proud, and boastful. And that truth is this, that God's grace is a gift, not a wage. God's grace is a gift, not a wage. Let's now look at Romans chapter 4. The four points that I hope will serve as a helpful outline for the talk this morning is as follows. Number one, uh, what has happened? Number two, uh, when did it happen? Number three, why is this important? And number four, how does this apply to us? Verse 1. Verse 1 says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Last Sunday, Matt walked us through Romans 3 that stated, But now a righteousness from God that has been manifested, revealed, made known, that those who believe in Jesus, God declares as justified. God declares not as guilty but innocent. God redeems for himself. He sets them free from sin, from guilt, from judgment, and he satisfies his perfect judgment 
through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. But despite this awesome truth about God's righteousness, the good news of Jesus, there was this ongoing, raging debate between the Jewish Christians and the non-Jewish Christians, the Gentiles, around this question of, is God, is he the God of the Jews, or is he the God of the Gentiles too? That's last week. Now Abraham gets brought into this debate, and the following questions start to pop up. Uh, What are we going to say about Abraham? What did he gain in the end? Where does he fit in God's plan and purpose? Paul's inclusion of Abraham was not so much to identify, highlight, exalt him to a place of prominence and praise. The Bible's purpose here is to give credit where credit is due. That is, God. But then the Jews and the Jewish Christians had it the wrong way around. They looked at Abraham's life and his actions, and then they said to others, look at Abraham, he got circumcised, look at how he obeyed. If you would like to be one of God's people, get circumcised like him, obey just like him. And so the question was, is it correct? Is that true? First point, what has happened? Verse 1 to 8. In verse 2 to 3, we're told, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Here is the argument. The argument goes like this. If Abraham is justified by good works, by his good deeds, that secures for him a right relationship with God, a right standing with him, then of course Abraham can boast. Answer, verse 2, no, not before God. Why? Verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed promises that God made. Promises that God made back in Genesis chapter 12, in Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17, in chapter 12, verse 2 and 3, God says to him, I will make you a great nation. I'll give you a great name. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And through you, all peoples on the earth will be blessed. Great news for Abraham, of course. All he he hears God say is that this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to give you. Legacy, greatness, blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. God promises. Abraham is the recipient of that promise. Sometimes in life, uh, we're seeking to answer the questions, why am I here? Uh, What is my purpose? Where is this all leading to? And if we're not uttering those questions with our lips or wrestling with those questions in our heart, it's at least played out in the way that we live. Looking for that dream job, going on that next holiday and chasing that next experience. Nothing wrong with these things, but apart from God, they are either vain or never enough. When apart from him, that's of course. Abraham could have knocked these promises back as some sort of self-determining, self-sufficient, self-actualized person, but he didn't. He believed God. So God makes promises. Abraham trusts him. But what about this business with God making Abraham righteous? 
In verse 4 to 5, the distinction is made between wages, righteousness. Wages is what you work for and you receive it not as a gift. Your employer owes it to you. Righteousness, different. You don't work for it. You didn't earn it. There are no KPIs, no quarterly, half-yearly, annual reviews, no pay raise, no promotion. You receive it as a gift. End the story. Why? Because God is good, gracious, generous. The natural posture, reflex of the human heart is to work, not receive, strive, not rest, boast, not be humble and grateful. The person that is constantly working is to be, the person who's constantly working to be loved, to be forgiven, accepted, never ever experiences that eternal peace. So when it says that God made Abraham righteous, again, a promise and the receiver of that promise. God justifies him. And this is what it means for Abraham to be made right with God. For us, in light of the good news of Jesus, God promises forgiveness, love, acceptance. We believe he justifies the ungodly, that's all of us, and we are made right with him. Justification, as we heard last week, declares the guilty innocent, where God looks at us, relates to us, treats us just as if we have never ever sinned. That's what happened. Don't forget Abraham slept with his Egyptian maid servant named Hagar because he failed to be patient in fully trusting God's promise of a son in Genesis 16. Abraham was basically saying to God, Lord, even though you promised me a son, but I'll fast track that promise. I'll give you a hand. I'll help myself. Hagar's single. This can work out. I'll sleep with her, just maybe we'll get there faster. I mean, people watch... The reality TV series, Married at First Sight. I'm telling you, if you want drama, turn off the telly, pick up the Bible, read about Abraham. Because <laughs> it is, it's drama. And maybe you'll get to Jesus along the way. I mean, this guy at 99 reckons it's a good idea to double down on God's promises by spreading his gene pool. We're also talking about a guy who on two previous occasions, he lied to Pharaoh, he lied to the king that his wife was his sister. Because again, he wasn't, he wasn't thinking about his wife, he was thinking about himself in Genesis 12 and 20. Once again, Abraham took matters into his own hands again and again. Not because he was in God's will. He stepped out of God's will. This time making his wife vulnerable. Vulnerable to assault, to violation, to being married off to someone else. Like us, Abraham is not squeaky clean. But what happens here is that despite all of that, God makes him a promise. God justifies him. God makes him right with himself. And just in case we've missed this point completely, the Bible also mentions another biblical Old Testament giant named David, King David. And it quotes what he wrote in verse 6 to 8. If you see it up there. David, like Abraham before him, was a man of dust who struggled with his own sins. He was God's chosen king, ruler over Israel, formerly an unknown shepherd, now a decorated warrior, fell from grace when he took another man's wife, and not just any man, but his loyal, faithful, committed, brave soldier. David sleeps with his wife, gets her pregnant, murders the woman's husband, attempts to cover up for it, the prophet turns up, and he calls him out. And then only then, David repents. His life is spared and he's forgiven. That's why David, when he wrote that long ago, 
he understood no amount of work on his part could cover, could take away the lust, the coveting, the adultery, dishonesty, conspiracy, and murder. I remember when I was a 16-year-old, growing up in a Christian family, going to church regularly, not a Christian, sitting in youth group one evening, and we were going through the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah, and I clearly remember saying to the youth leader, that idiot deserves to die. What sort of God forgives someone like that? But he can. Now I know he can. When he chooses to, he can. That's what's happened. God makes the unrighteous righteous. Last weekend, I drove down to Melbourne with a Christian brother, his sons, my two younger boys, for our annual pilgrimage. Come Sunday over, uh, over, we're sitting at Albert Park Racetrack. I'm sitting there in my outdoor chair, trackside, turn nine, chicane in front, massive screen, a little to the left, gravel trap further to the left, and if ever there's a spot where cars will collide, it would be there. That's where the action is. Turn nine, take note. And the most prestigious race in the world in the 2019 Australian Grand Prix, Formula One, 20 international drivers, Mercedes, McLaren, Ferrari, 1,000 horsepower machines zipping around under one minute and 30 seconds, because I know that, because I go there every year, and one spectator turns to me and says, I cannot believe that you are reading your Bible and you are punching into your laptop. Friends, when you read Romans 4, for those of you who have been encouraged, to read the passage before coming to church on Sunday, which is very profitable and helpful. <laughs> Verse 1 to 8, when you get to that, how can you not see that reading Romans 4 is far more greater, superior and satisfying than standing on the podium with a reef around your neck, spraying champagne? What's happened? God made the righteous, the unrighteous, righteous. That's what's happened. It's a big deal. Point number two, when, it hap when did it happen? Verse 9 to 15. This question regarding God making Abraham righteous has to do with timing in relation to circumcision and the law. Let's look first at circumcision. Verse 9 to 10. First question, whom was the blessing for? God's righteousness. The circumcised Jews, Jewish Christians, or the uncircumcised Gentiles? And the second question, when was this blessing given? Before Abraham was circumcised or after he was circumcised? This question was important, very critical for the Jews back then. Why? For them, there was this complete confidence in their head, in their lives, that they themselves were righteous because they were circumcised. However, doubt in their minds that the Gentiles were righteous because they weren't circumcised. In their minds, what they did rather than what God had done mattered more. If God made Abraham righteous after circumcision, then they, not God, were the ones who get the credit. But if God made them righteous before circumcision, then God, not themselves, he's the one who gets glorified. The Bible goes on to declare that Abraham was made righteous by God, not after, but before before he was circumcised. And this would have been shocking, a shocking revelation to your proud, true blue, dinky die Jew. Why? Because this would have meant that Abraham was a Gentile, a Gentile before God made him righteous. 
shocking to the Jew because it's now consistent with the God of the Bible who is determined and even-handed in blessing both Jews and Gentiles alike. The kind of news that empties us of self-righteousness, self-indulging, boastful, religious zealot of any claim or grounds to boast before a holy, perfect God. Now, if you're new to church this morning, this whole talk about circumcision, it might be foreign, it might be new. Last week was Dedication Sunday. This week is not Circumcision Sunday. (laughs) However, having said that, You need to understand what circumcision is all about in terms of the background when it comes to the Bible. Back in Genesis chapter 17, as God made the same kind of promises that he made to Abraham in chapter 12, God instructs him, verse 10 to 13, in Genesis 17, circumcise every male from that time onwards as a sign of the covenant between you and I. Look with me at verse 11 to 12. As you can see there, Naturally, for the Jew and the Jewish Christian, the follow-up question would be this. If Abraham was made righteous before he was circumcised, what then is the purpose of circumcision? Well, circumcision adds nothing to God's gift of righteousness to Abraham's people. It's just this outward sign of an inner reality of the faith that Abraham and God's people had in the one who made these promises in the one who makes you right with himself. Now with God making Abraham righteous concerning the question of timing in relation to the law, if you see there in verse 13 to 15, in relation to the law, God's promise to Abraham came four centuries before the law was given by the prophet Moses at Mount Sinai. God had already determined before the law was given to make Abraham righteous. The promise was not realized through the obedience to the law, but through faith in God who makes you righteous. The law only identifies sin in your life. It exposes sin in your life. It attracts God's judgment, but it does absolutely nothing to inspire faith in us. And so between the time of Adam, first man, and the prophet Moses, sin was always around but it wasn't explicitly recognised. The law back then, like the law of the land today, unable to eliminate it, can't even restrain it. Still powerless to get rid of it. So God made Abraham righteous before circumcision, before the law. Third point, why is it important? What difference does this make? What does it matter? Why is it that God counting righteousness to Abraham is relevant. And God doing this before circumcision or the law. Well, verse 16 to 17. It only matters if the true people of God, people of the end time, people of faith are saved and set apart by one thing only. Not works, not law, not law keeping, not circumcision, but by grace. God has promised And those who believe in him are recipients of that promise. The true people of God, regardless of whether they're Jew or Gentile, have tasted his grace. 16 years ago, on the front cover of the Time magazine, one artist's impression of Abraham, and under it was this image and words, Muslims, Christians, and Jews all claim him as their father. Or some would like to view Abraham as their father. 
of what is known the Abrahamic faiths. The Bible is clear that what makes Abraham the father of all and us his offspring is faith in God who makes us righteous through the gift of his son Jesus. People of the end time are recipients of that grace. And so our direct lineage, our link you know, to this man named Abraham, not physical, spiritual. Verse 18 to 22, against all odds, Abraham believed God that he would become the father of all nations. His body was way beyond the stage where he should be painting the nursery. 100 years old, instead should be enjoying the company of grandchildren. Wife Sarah is barren, has been for a long time, but his faith grew stronger. And as he grew in the praise of God, he was fully convinced that God would come through. Now, as a middle-aged man, Abraham's example here gives me hope. I was talking to a 47-year-old friend of mine during the week, and he's thinking of stepping into ministry full-time, not that ministry can only be done full-time in that context. But what encouraged me was he wasn't thinking about anything else but the glory and the gospel of Jesus. Sometimes in the West, the older we get, and I know this is a generalisation, we play it safe. We play it safe. We try to minimise the risks, but we don't step out in faith. Abraham's faith grew stronger as he got older, as he got one step closer to glory. He became more convinced that God's promises are enough. And even though Abraham had a few challenges along the way, as we've heard earlier on in a talk, but we see here a faith that is constantly progressing, growing, and flourishing. Also, it should be stated that it's not the strength or the quality of your faith that matters. It's the object of your faith, God, the promises he makes. My fourth and final point, how does this then apply to us today? Verse 23 to 25. If you have a look at that. The question is, the question is what can we take away from this passage? Abraham's blood doesn't run in our veins. His genes do not live in us, but rather us imitating his faith in God's promises is what makes us children of Abraham, a part of God's kingdom people. And if Adam, the first man, our biological father, doubted God's word, defied God, Abraham, our spiritual father, believed God's promises, who is able to give life even after death, bring things into existence. This passage that we have just looked at wasn't just written for Abraham. It was written for our sake too. That those of us who believe that the God who raised Jesus back to life from the dead did so to deliver us from our sins, guilt and his just judgment. For our justification. Because of Jesus' resurrection, it's not just a hope in a distant future, eternal life, but it means God's approval now, righteousness is only found in Jesus, not in our own good works. The Jews, they pointed to the works of the obedience of Abraham and the works of the law under Moses. The Bible keeps going back and pointing us to the work, the complete work of Jesus. Grace, gift, God's generosity through his son. During the week, a friend at work who also comes in as a volunteer with me when we go into um, Long Bay, uh, when he's free, he's able to come in and serve. And he was sharing with me, and he agreed for me to share this testimony with you. 
Fascinating story. But God gets the glory. When he was younger, married with kids, he had a high-paying job, worked six days a week, 12 hours a day, made a ton of money, only ever drove a luxury car. In his words, he said, every time I pulled up at the lights and I'd see somebody in a Hyundai, that was bad news. I'm sorry if you drive a Hyundai, but that was his opinion. His kids went to exclusive schools and they went on expensive holidays. But just a couple of years ago, in the same year, he was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. His wife left him, he lost his job, he lost his house, and he wanted to commit suicide. And then suddenly when Jesus turns up and he learns more about the good news of Jesus, a righteousness that is given, a righteousness that is not earned, a righteousness that comes from God that makes him right with the Lord, suddenly he discovers a new identity, a new purpose in life and a hope for the future. He said to me, the doctor reckons I've got until May next year to live, said he. All my life I have worked and gathered and stored and built my own empire only to lose it. And now that it's gone, when it comes to Jesus, I've contributed nothing. I've received everything because of the gospel. I mean, we're talking about a guy who shows up to work, my job, before I get there. Because such is the urgency and the desire and the passion and the commitment and the faithfulness to share the good news of Jesus with men who are forgotten in our society, who are incarcerated, because he knows what grace is. He's tasted it. And it's sweet. And he knows that it satisfies. And he's committed and confident that, you know, with grace, it will last on forever. That's what it comes down to, friends. That God should give us a gift called grace, namely Jesus Christ, that when we should receive it, we did not earn it. We cannot boast before him. It's not a wage. It was given. And all we can do is stand at the foot of the cross as beggars, humble, grateful, thankful that he should call us out whom he knew before the foundations of the world were laid, that he would bless us. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you for the gift of grace in your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have enabled us through your word to see that truth. Now with your spirit, I ask and pray, convict us, apply it to our hearts that we would walk in close fellowship with you in total humility, in dependence for your glory, for your honour, for your namesake, for your fame and for the joy of many in this great city. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.